1: out right here young's dead to rights. boom flips around dime touchdown time game blouses um how about the win for bama that was incredible uh folks This is the Joel Klatt Show. I am Joel Klatt. I cannot wait for this episode. It's Thursday. We're almost here. It's almost college football Saturday. Gus and Ginny and I will be up in Lincoln, Nebraska for Big Noon Saturday. Um, I'm really enjoying doing this show. I'm glad you are as well. Uh, Remember, folks, uh, download the show, subscribe, uh, tell a friend about it. Uh, and then review it for us, please. And if you missed Wednesday's episode, go back and check it out. Lots of great stuff on uh, Michigan and their quarterback situation with J.J. McCarthy and Cade McNamara. So Michigan fans and, and everybody, go check that out. USC being legit, uh, I laid out exactly why I think USC is a legit playoff contender this year. It's not just a cute story anymore for Lincoln Riley and the Trojans. They're a legit playoff contender this season, you're gonna to have to go back and listen to Wednesday's episode to uh, check out those thoughts, and then a long uh, discussion about head coaching changes and decisions from presidents and athletic directors. And I tell you exactly why these decisions are being made: firing a guy after three games, like we've seen with Scott Frost at Nebraska, uh, giving Jimbo Fisher, you know, a ten-year contract, and Mel Tucker and James Franklin and 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 Dabo and Kirby and Nick Saban are all getting. million. Why is that happening? It sounds like madness. It's not. And I explain exactly the reason why it's not in Wednesday's episode. So check that uh, out, as well as some fan base check-in with some fan bases around the country. In this show, we're going to break down quickly Oklahoma and Nebraska. That's my game this week. I got a lot of thoughts on that game. And then we'll get into some what-if scenarios about Saturday. Um, A&M. Some thoughts on you, Penn State, some thoughts on you, and then uh, why BYU uh, could be more legit than we are expecting. That's all coming up, so let's get into it right away. Oklahoma, Nebraska. One of the best rivalries in the history of college football, folks. Um, And if you grew up like I did in the Denver, Colorado area or in the old Big 8 footprint, this was, let's face it, and all due respect to the CU-Nebraska rivalry, but this was the rivalry at times in all of college football. Game of the century in the 70s, Johnny Rogers, the punt return, uh, tore them loose from their shoes, epic call. Even last year's game, I mean, th- like this was where the national championship was won and lost for the better part of, you know, 15 years and or, or longer and and just two programs with so much history and now they come into this game after kind of uh, scheduling these home and homes in the non-conference in two very different places obviously i mean the stark difference with what's going on at oklahoma and what's going on at nebraska is 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 wild and i can't wait to get up there okay so first and foremost you have to understand that this is a game that there's probably more going on off the field than there is on the field. There are some games like last week, man, it's just like on the field. Here it is, who's going to win, Bama best Texas in an epic matchup, and then you kind of move forward from there. That's most games. In fact, almost every single game. You just lay it out on the field, and there you have it. This game is so much different because of all the underlying stories. Obviously, you've got the historic rivalry, which I just talked about, but then you get into the fact that from the OU perspective, you've got this new coach and this new style of football that you're going to have to be okay with being in tight ball games in the first half. You know, listen, that wasn't comfortable in the first half against Kent State last week for a number of different reasons, but it wasn't comfortable. This is a different style of football that they're having to get used to under Brent Venables. This is a totally new adjust adjustment for Sooner fans. Now, a welcomed adjustment. When you talk with Sooner fans, they love it. They love Brent Venables. They think Lincoln Riley is a snake, and they think that this is going to be the path in which they not only return to the playoff, but potentially win a playoff game because they feel like they're going to have a better defense. More on that in a little bit. But the other side of this that I think is so fascinating is the speed with which Oklahoma has developed this really positive chemistry on their team. Now, normally you could say with a with a popular hire like Venables was, there's a honeymoon period, but this is well past the honeymoon period. Now, we've got games going on, and I am surprised because of, of what history would tell us about how fast the buy-in has taken place at OU. What are the reasons why OU has great chemistry under Brent Venables? Well, I believe that there's three reasons. First and foremost, this guy was an immensely popular hire within the fan base, within the alums, and within uh, the the locker room, in part because of his track record at Clemson and also his track record at Oklahoma. He had both going for him. So you win the modern athlete in the locker room because of his success at Clemson. This guy's won national championships. They've seen it. He's done it at the highest level. But he also has the fan base and the alumni. Why? Because he coached at Oklahoma. So he's got this this unique blend of new and old, which allows him to come in with with positive momentum right from the start. So that's number one. Number two is the structure of college football. It's totally different now. In the past, what you would have seen is a coach would have said, and, and many have said this to me over the years, hey, Joel, it takes me two or three years to really turn over the locker room and to get my guys in here. Well, that's no longer the case. The transfer portal allows you to do two things. One, bring in the guys that you know are going to be committed to you. They're choosing you. They're your players. You can get a number of them, any number of them. right? We've seen Mel Tucker do that at Michigan State, and certainly Oklahoma did that in the transfer portal this year. But it also does something under the surface, which is the guys that aren't sure about you and that aren't bought in can be shown the door immediately they can show themselves the door and leave the program. And so you've got this underlying issue with the structure of college football which allows Brent Venables to get his team in that locker room much quicker than in the past. And then the third reason is they're seeing the success on the field. This is a coach that comes as it comes in as a defensive oriented coach and the defense right away is showing signs of improvement. 10th in college football and scoring defense. They're getting after the quarterback. These guys feel like this is trending in the right direction. So Venables comes in, and right now it's a combination of honeymoon phase and positive chemistry that are born of all of those structural things. So that's going on as Oklahoma comes on, uh, goes up to Lincoln to take on Nebraska. And then you have the Nebraska angle, an absolute dumpster fire. That's not a knock, okay? And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, and this is not an old Colorado quarterback taking a shot at the Cornhuskers. It's the truth. When you fire your coach after the third game, it's a dumpster fire. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So Mickey Joseph gets the interim job, and this is not an easy task for Mickey Joseph. He's got to try to retain some level of buy-in and discipline from the current players and buy-in and discipline from, and this is the tough part, his own staff. These are not his guys. These guys are looking, and and their wives are asking them, their families asking them, where are we going to be next year? I don't know. What are we going to do next year? Where are you going to coach? Who do you know? Where are the openings going to be? The distractions for the coaching staff alone are immense. They're immeasurable of what's going on at Nebraska. So all of that is going on. Meanwhile, Trev Alberts is desperately trying to retain some positive flow with the fan base, trying to retain this sellout streak, which is well over 300. They're not sold out for for some Big Ten games uh, later this year. They've got upwards of 3,000 tickets available. They've been sold out every game dating back to like the early 70s. They're not sold out for some of these Big Ten games. Sold out this week for Oklahoma – Someone's going to have to step up and buy those tickets or one of the most storied sellout streaks in all of football, pro or college, is going to end. And I know Nebraska fans don't want that to end. So Trev Albers is trying to retain some positivity by saying, like, there's a new direction coming. Nebraska fans, players, and coaches, it's going to be so tough to actually focus on the game. Who's my leader if I'm a coach? Where I'm gonna be next year if I'm an assistant coach. Trev Alberts, can I sell the tickets? Can I retain the fan base? All of this is going on. And guess what? We still have to play a game. <laughs> this is so what's what's so bizarre about this game. I can't remember doing a game that there was this many storylines off the field, and the ones on the field almost pale in comparison. Almost pale in comparison to what's going on around the fringes. Now on the on the field, here's a, just a quick synopsis of of what's gone wrong with Nebraska. Nebraska is playing horrific defense. They would tell you that, and they've got a good coordinator. Eric Chenander is a good coordinator. They were really good last year. That's part of the problem. Their biggest problem is that they underestimated the impact that some of the losses in personnel. We're going to have on this defense. They had guys that were veteran guys on that defense a year ago that played really well, by the way, and in tight, really good ballgames against great teams like Michigan and Ohio State. And they had guys that would show out. And maybe they weren't superstars, but they were veteran players and they knew how to play well. Guys like Jojo Doman, Cam Taylor Britt, who was a draft pick, um, Damian Daniels, he was a good player, Martel Dismukes, the safety, Dante Williams. Ben Stilley, every one of these guys was either a fourth, fifth, or or sixth year senior. So the leadership and quality play from these guys is gone, and they underestimated the contributions that they gave a year ago. So now their offense is fine. Their offense is averaging over 30 points a game and in large respect has played well enough to be 3-0, and but their defense hasn't matched it. They scored over 40 points at home against Georgia Southern and lost. Okay, so the losses for them on that defensive side have been staggering and tough to overcome. They've got to get better on the defensive side. Now, OU on the field, their offense will continue to get better. I'm not as concerned about the first-half struggles last week against Kent State. One of the reasons is, one, you've got a new staff that's trying this new marriage, a guy like Bill Biedenbow, who's the offensive line coach, who's trying to marry with, with Jeff Lebby and his style, and it will, and it will get there. And There's a a, a real positive sentiment, at least in, in my eyes, because of the way that they adjusted and played well in the second half. Remember, they did not run the ball well against Kent State early. Then they had well over 100 yards just in the second half alone on the ground. Part of that, by the way, is because Kent State plays a very unique structure of defense, And OU wasn't quite sure what they were going to get from Kent State. So they had to feel it out in the first half. They play the stack defense. And rather than bore you with the intricacies of the stack defense, it's very hard for the offensive linemen to get their count right. And their count is paramount to make the calls necessary to make that run game go. Once they ended up targeting it, knowing what they were seeing, then they started running the ball really well. The most improvement that we've seen from OU is on the defensive side. And that's obviously where Brent Venables is focusing because they're playing great defense. And folks, if they can play great defense, if they can continue to be explosive on offense, then this is a team, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that is the favorite in the Big 12. Even with the way that Texas played against Alabama last week, Oklahoma would still be my favorite in the Big 12. The Big 12 still has to go through the Oklahoma Sooners, and in particular with the way that they have been playing on defense. So there's a a quick overview, I guess not so quick, of that OU Nebraska game. I can't wait to get up there. It's a great environment. I played at Nebraska. In fact, it was a weird deal. Not for Nebraska, but at Nebraska. When I was at Colorado, they were our biggest rival, and we would always play the Friday after Thanksgiving. And as a kid, I mean, I remember that game. That was like the game of my childhood as a Colorado fan. And the odd part was... When I grew up, Nebraska was amazing. Like in the 90s, they were incredible, preeminent program in the country. And it was so difficult. They had such a a home field advantage, it was almost unthinkable to have a big game and go in there and beat them in Lincoln. And in my four years at Colorado, they beat us twice in Boulder and we beat them twice in Lincoln. So no home team won. Uh, kind Kind of strange in that regard. Having said that, can't wait to get up there. One of the best fan bases in all of college football. One of the most polite and and certainly looking forward to see some of you Cornhuskers. Okay, let's get into some what ifs about college football Saturday. Um, This could be a wild weekend, folks. A wild weekend. I'm going to answer some questions and some scenarios about possible outcomes this Saturday. Here we go. What do we have first? What if Miami beats Texas A&M? Ooh, that ain't an Aggie yell, by the way. That ain't a whoop. All right, I'm not, I'm not swaying. If Miami wins, it is a five-alarm fire in College Station. Just pull yourself back a moment, and there's two things that you cannot avoid. If A&M loses to Miami this week, number one is the fact that there are no excuses anymore. Folks, there isn't a program in college football that has committed more resources to facilities, personnel, and now NIL than Texas A&M. They are pot committed in every sense of the word. They've built the buildings. They've hired the coach. They gave out that first 10-year contract. They gave Jim Jimbo what was it? Like $75 million. Everyone was like, What? He's one of the only guys to win a national championship. Then they went out and they got aggressive in NIL to the point that they just signed not just the top recruiting class in the country, the best recruiting class in the history of recruiting. There are no excuses. They cannot lose this game. They played woefully bad on offense against App State. They cannot repeat that against Miami. And then here's the next layer. Why is it a five alarm, a five alarm fire? No excuses, number one. And number two, they are staring down barrel at two and four, maybe one and five to start this year. You think that's crazy? Look at their schedule, folks. If they can't beat App State at home, if they can't beat Miami at home, are they going to beat Arkansas, a top 10 team, in AT&T Stadium in Arlington? Are they going to win at Mississippi State? Are they going to win at Alabama? In particular that week with all the Jimbo and Saban issues that are going to be flying around. Remember now, this Bama team at home, dominant. On the road, they've had their troubles. They've got to go to Tuscaloosa. You you think the tide won't be ready for Texas A&M after the Aggies won last year and stormed the field after the war of words in the offseason? Then they've got to buy. Then they've got to go to South Carolina, who's banged up and hasn't played well. They host Ole Miss. That's a ranked team. They got to play Florida and Anthony Richardson, who's a good team. They've got to go to Auburn. They get their SEC cupcake in November at UMass, and then they've got LSU. Look at what they've got. If they get beat by Miami, they could very easily be one and five, maybe two and four, maybe one and five. My that would be App State, Miami. Then what? Arkansas, Mississippi State, and Alabama. You've got to win one of those games to be two and four. Five alarm fire if Miami wins this game. There's no excuses left for Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher, and that schedule is brutal. By the way, for Miami, you talk about a springboard in recruiting for one of the best recruiters in the entire country for another school that's also becoming pot committed as far as committing to resources, committing to NIL. Boy, that would be a huge springboard for Miami if they were able to go in and beat
0: Texas A&M. All
1: right, what's next?
0: What if Nick Singleton has another breakout game?
1: Oh, man, I tell you what. Nick Singleton, the top running back in last year's recruiting class, signs with Penn State a year after Penn State falls woefully short in the run game and is really the reason why they, they, along with injuries, but – Stumbled down the stretch. Remember, this was a top-four team at one point in Iowa City. They're beating Iowa 17-3 to at one point. Their, their quarterback goes down, and then their season just kind of crumbles, in part because they could not run the football. Now they get Nick Singleton, best running back in the class, and this dude is going off. Going off. They didn't run it great against Purdue, but how about on the year, Singleton 210 yards so far, 10 and a half per carry? So then you start to think like, well, if Nick Singleton's gonna run the ball really well, then Sean Clifford's gonna take the next step and become much better. They're bringing along Drew Aller, their freshman quarterback, got him some snaps last week. They would beat Auburn this week in Auburn. If Nick Singleton is a breakout star, they would beat Auburn this week on the road. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Then you start to look at Penn State and you start to th- look at their schedule. And you're like, okay, well, what will they got coming up? Well, not much before they go to Michigan. So now you're looking at another year in which they would probably be 5-0 and in the top 13, 12, 11, maybe even top 10, depending on the results in the top 10, going to Michigan, and you would have a giant game against the Wolverines. I think that all depends on Nick Singleton. He allows them to develop what is a young defense. He allows them to play in the play action and RPO game with a quarterback that desperately needs an RPO and play action game. If Nick Singleton is a star, Penn State's all of a sudden legit. Then you start to look at that division and the Big Ten East all of a sudden has four teams that you could say, yeah, they might be a top 10 team. Think about that. That all hinges on Nick Singleton, a freshman running back. Just played high school football a year ago. If he's a breakout star, that becomes the best division in football. Now, they might not have a team that's better than Georgia at this point, but they would have an elite team in Ohio State. They would have a team that just won the conference and went to the playoff and is playing at a high level in Michigan. And they would have an 11-win team from a year ago in Michigan State with Mel Tucker. And they would have a run game and a defense and an overall program that believes that they're a top-10 team more like the early version of last season for Penn State. So watch out. If Singleton breaks out, they beat Auburn and likely go to Ann Arbor 5-0 for a game that I'm almost certain Gus and Ginny and I would be at. That's what they've got staring at them. And James Franklin, it would continue these wild ups and downs for him, you know, starting uh, a 5-0 and last year and then kind of crashing. The year before, they start, what was it, 4-1 and or 0-4, and then they they – it, I mean, it's been kind of all or nothing, these stretches for Penn State under James Franklin over the last couple of years, and, and you would sense that that would continue. And what they're looking for is consistency throughout a whole season. Guess what gives you consistency throughout a whole season A run game? Guess what gives you a run game? A breakout star like Nick
0: Singleton. Next. What if BYU beats Oregon? Oh, oh. Well, first,
1: Oregon fans would panic. <laughs> uh, after the egg that they laid against Georgia in week one. But this would be more about BYU. If BYU can beat Oregon, think about it now. They just beat Baylor while Baylor was in the top 10. I know that game was late, but man, what a great environment in Provo. Kalani Satake is doing a heck of a job. That Now that's a guy that's going to be in line for, for a major coaching job, <laughs> Trev Alberts. Kalani Satake is a heck of a coach, and he's doing doing it at BYU. Then you start to have to look at BYU's schedule, and you're like, hold on. Do they have enough firepower to make a playoff run? If they were to have a Baylor win under their belt and a BYU win under their belt, or, excuse me, an Oregon win under their belt. That would be the defending Big 12 champ, the defending Pac-12 North champ. Guess what else they still have on their schedule? Notre Dame and Arkansas. Now, that Arkansas would be really difficult. And Arkansas is way more athletic than Baylor, and they're faster. And so, BYU better get healthy. Remember, they beat Baylor without their top two wide receivers. Puka Nakua, he wasn't out there. So, they're going to need to get healthy, certainly. But but. They would be in that conversation non-power five school that you would start to think to yourself, like maybe they would start to make a run. They would at least have the firepower. The one thing that that you could say is that they would have an argument at that point if they won all of those games. And then the knock on them is that we are such a backloaded sport in terms of opinion and sentiment and certainly playoff rankings. They don't have that firepower late. Because they're an independent and it's hard to build their schedule, they don't have those great games late in the season. So they'll be playing four or five cupcakes towards the end, save for Stanford, which I believe is their last game. But they don't have those games that everyone in November is going to be like, BYU, watch out for BYU. That's why I've always said for a group of five team, they need a two-year cycle. It took Cincinnati two years to get into the playoff. BYU would kind of be on the first year of that cycle, and their November schedule would not help, in particular if Stanford doesn't bounce back after that USC loss last week. All right, so that'll do it for the what-ifs. I did want to get to some questions out there on sh- on social media because uh, you guys have been great listening to the show, and you've sent a lot of questions um, about the sport in, and so I wanted to get to some of those here at the end so how about a little bit of uh ask clats so we'll take three
0: questions here and w- w- let's get started what do we at got helen of troy 22 says how is ohio state number two when marshall put up more points against notre dame than they did so helen is is bringing up the fact that in in my
1: top 10 i had ohio state at number two um, Helen it had nothing to do with how many points Marshall scored against them versus Notre Dame or how many points Notre Dame scored versus how many points Ohio State scored. For Everything for me with Ohio State coming into this year was about their defense. Why? Because their track record offensively under Ryan Day is as good as any. They were the top offense in the country last year. They're only going to get more healthy with Jack Jackson Smith and Jigba. They proved that they could run the football. I'm not worried about their offense. All the questions were about their defense. And now in the first couple of weeks, this defense under new defensive coordinator, Jim Knowles is giving up. What is it under 70 yards on, on the ground per game and about 11 points per game. So for me, Ohio state is answering the questions necessary to be in the spot that they're at. That's a really talented team. And granted, Notre Dame didn't play great against Marshall. They played pretty well against Ohio State. They've, they felt like they had a good plan. They were playing fast. I don't know what happened against Marshall. I think that's growing pains of a young coach. But that's why I have Ohio State number two. And like, who else are you putting number two? Helen? I mean, do you want Helen of Troy? I guess you're a USC fan. Do you want USC number two? Do you want to talk about defense? You want to talk about defense? Because Ohio State's defense is playing a lot better than USC's defense. I'm assuming you're a USC fan. But that's
0: that's why I've got Ohio State number two. All right, who's next? At Chris Brander123 says, with an expanded playoff as well as bigger conferences like the Big Ten and the SEC, that leaves less games during the season for the Sun Belt to play the Power Five schools, correct?
1: Uh, yes, and maybe no. All of it. All of uh, all of that can be true. Um okay, so Chris Brander, by the way, great, great movie character. Um most likely with these new conferences, what we're gonna get is a nine game conference schedule from the SEC, from the Big Ten, which they're already doing that now, from the Pac 12 or soon to be 10, Big 12. Well, I mean, however, I you're most likely going to get a nine-game conference schedule. Even in the ACC, I think that they'll go to a nine-game conference schedule. So, yes, that means that there's less games available for teams in the Sun Belt or other smaller conferences, for that matter. That being said, I do think that there is a sentiment within the power brokers in college football that they understand the importance of playing at least one game if you're in a power conference playing at least one game against one of those schools to help with those schools budgets remember on saturday we saw these teams get large payouts to go in there and do what they did marshall got paid 1.25 million dollars app state they took home a cool one and a half million and kicked the aggies ass georgia southern got paid $1.3 million, just tack it on to the buyout because Scott Frost was shown the door. Those games are really important for those programs because of their budget. So you're going to see one of two things, Chris. You're either going to see a concerted effort that those power conferences would say, okay, we're definitely going to play nine conference games. We're definitely going to play a 10th game against another power conference, but we're definitely also going to play a hosted game against a team from one of the conferences like the Sun Belt. I think that you'll still see that. I think you'll also see a bit of rev sharing from the college football playoff expansion that goes to some of those schools in order to help with their budgets. Lots of moving parts, but that's kind of what I see, Chris. All right, what's next? Last
0: one, and then we'll get out of here. Justin Reward says... Which environment was better to be at this game or the Ohio State versus Michigan game last year? I think
1: that's a, that's a, in reference. I said the the game in Austin was an amazing environment, which it was, which it was. But fo- but like folks, like the environment in Michigan Stadium last November was totally unmatched. In part because of the environment, in part because of the historic rivalry, and in part because of what the game meant. I mean, you know, it's hard. You cannot be a prisoner of the moment. And while that game Saturday was epic and the environment was epic, that game between Michigan and Ohio State, with the history between those two programs, the history of Jim Harbaugh at Michigan and not getting over the hump of Ohio State, the snow falling, what it meant in the grand scheme of the college football year, the winner wins the East, goes to the Big Ten championship, and based on who they were going to play, likely gets a bid into the college football playoff. Everything was on the line. Jim Harbaugh's legacy on the line. Everything was on the line that day. The snow was falling. It was an unbelievable environment. And I still bring up on my phone, I took a video of just the sea of people on the field. I never knew that you could fit over 110,000 people in the stands at Michigan and 88,000 on the field at Michigan because there was not one spot of green turf that I could see. Everybody down there singing Mr. Brightside from the Killers. Epic environment. Let's not be a prisoner of the moment. Saturday was phenomenal. It did not touch last year's Michigan-Ohio State game. Folks, uh, thanks for listening. Remember, go download, uh, review, and share with your friends. It's been a fun week. Cannot wait for Saturday. Big noon. We're in Lincoln, Nebraska, folks. Follow the show at Joel Clatt Show. You can follow me at Joel Clatt on Twitter, at Joel underscore Clatt on Instagram. Come back Monday. Monday, full recap of week three of college football. That's coming up. Thanks for listening.